You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. Should we go back to a happier time? <laughs> okay. Let's remember some years sponsored by our friends Pagliacci Pizza. It's 2012. Because Pagliacci Pizza are real ones on the street. Just like you would expect, much respect to Pagliacci Pizza for supporting the protesters on Capitol Hill from their Capitol location, passing out water, like, eh, Pagliacci Pizza, always with the W. Of course. Just like... Pizza-wise, social justice-wise, that is what Pagliacci Pizza is about. Just like the Seahawks got some big W's in the 2012 draft. Uh, most notably in the third round, although the second round went pretty well too. In the first possibly, round, wasn't even that bad. Is this possibly the best draft of all time? I don't know. The Steelers had some drafts where they got like multiple Hall of Famers too, so I, I think those are still ahead. But it's, but the Seahawks yeah. drafted at least two Hall of Famers in this draft. In all likelihood, yes. I mean, there's one lock Hall of Famer in the draft, but yes. and I, th- I mean, Bobby Wagner with the pretty close the to a pros, lock Hall of Famer. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a very good draft. I'm not arguing that. <laughs> a very good draft? I'm just saying, is, the, is there an argument a, to be made that this is the best draft? It's an old-time draft. I, I mean, I'd have to look at some of those Steelers drafts to really say. And really, the Steelers? That's what you're focusing on? Yeah, because they... Okay. All right. Best NFL draft classes. But not draft classes. Individual teams. Yeah. Best NFL team draft classes. Uh, NFL draft ranking the top 10 team holes of the past 25 years. Well, the Steelers really do come up. I was wondering the Cowboys. The 70s. Okay, the 75 Cowboys lead this ESPN story. Uh, They got Randy White, uh, Hollywood Henderson, several starters, not as many Hall of Famers. It was 71, they got, or 74, they got Jack Lambert, Lynn Swan, John Stallworth, and Mike Webster. That's, that's it. That's I don't. That's four Hall of Famers. Okay. They won, like, several Super Bowls. <laughs> they won four Super Bowls in the 70s. I, okay. I think okay, so way. this 74 draft, Lynn Swan, Jack Lambert, John Stallworth, Mike Webster. Yeah. And then the I'm saying Bears E three, I mean honestly like maybe I don't know history that well but Jimbo Covert Willie Galt Mike Richardson Dave Dorson Tom Thayer Richard Dent and Mike Bortz. I mean these guys made up the core of a uh, significant percentage of the eighty five Bears so yeah I think they're okay. pretty good. But number three number three ninety one Dallas Cowboys Russell Maryland Eric Williams Larry Brown and Leon Lett like there's no Hall of Fame quarterback in there. But it's not like Russell wasn't the only Hall of Fame quarterback ever drafted. I'm sure other teams drafted a Hall of Fame quarterback in the same in, year. In years that teams, I'm seeing of all these draft classes, I am not seeing a single Hall of Fame quarterback. And as far as things that we know, Hall of Fame quarterbacks are the most important thing you can draft. True. All right. But first, coming off the 2011 season when their defense had really emerged, but they, you know, still were struggling on offense. The Seahawks went out and signed Matt Flynn to a three-year, $20.5 million contract, and we were excited. Oh, I mean, Matt Flynn was like, we see this every year, he was the Week 16-17 superstar. 
I mean, he'd started two games in his career because he'd been backing up Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay, and in hindsight, probably should have just kept Matt Flynn. Uh, probably should have just started instead of Aaron Rodgers. Went 31 of 44 for 480 yards and six touchdowns in their 2011 regular season finale against a playoff-bound Lions team. And made $20.5 million in that game. To help the Packers go to 15-1. and Okay, so let's talk about Russ going into the draft. So I don't feel like I paid that much attention to him at Wisconsin, even though I surely watched that. I definitely cared. I, I, I don't want to be like a revisionist history person, but I remember going into this draft, caring, wanting the Seahawks. I, I, I'm not going to say that it was like the only thing that I cared about, but I remember thinking like, it was one of those things where you're like, gee, I guess I feel like they should draft that Russell Wilson guy. He had, he, where he really jumped on my radar is, radar is the football outsiders, Lewin career forecast for quarterbacks, which was interviewed, or interviewed, uh, created by a guy who works for the Celtics now, Dave Lewin, when he was in college, which is kind of funny. Uh, he had the highest projection ever for a quarterback in their model, which dealt with quarterbacks who were expected to be drafted in rounds one through three. And so they put an asterisk on him, which it's, aster- it's asterisk season right now, uh, because it wasn't certain that he would be drafted in the first three rounds. And then also because part of why he rated so high was he had played so much better as a senior than a junior, and that was after his transfer from NC State to Wisconsin. So it wasn't apples to apples. But also, like, the reason usually they do that is they did the one first three rounds thing is because you'd get, like, this Texas Tech quarterback who everyone agreed was not good enough to play in the NFL or at least be a starter, but put up these huge numbers in the air raid and, you know, just would come out with this massive projection. I feel like Cliff Kingsbury, of all people, is probably like the platonic ideal Uh of that. His projection as the head coach. Got it. Yes. Yes, his projection of his house that he was living in. <laughs> Literally, they were talking about the projection of his house during the NFL draft. <laughs> Great view of the mountains. Uh, but Russ like didn't have that. He played at Wisconsin, which is not exactly known for like, oh yeah, oh the gaudy quarterback stats oh, at Wisconsin. Uh, he handed the ball off. He did some things that he's doing in the NFL still. It was like, Russ he... and the guy from draft day were the two quarterbacks who put up big numbers hey. at Wisconsin. People will show up to Ross's birthday. <laughs> they should, oh, I don't know. There's moments maybe they didn't. No, they would. Uh, so that's when I was like, yeah. CR was there. He was dressed like Batman. It's fine. Let's get. Uh, that's when I was like, let's get Russell Wilson. Oh, I, I'm saying like we felt this before the draft. Like Russell Wilson was, he was one of the players that we had sort of like, you go into a draft targeting. And the Seahawks didn't have a quarterback. You know, like, we don't do this with quarterbacks anymore, but I'm sure that there have been players since then that we would have kind of... You, you circle them, and you're like, oh. that that's who we want. Or this, we do that with Anthony Gordon this year, potentially. No. Very different. Uh, so Wilson's official nickname, the only nickname that Football Outsiders or Football Reference has roasted for him, Pro Football Reference, is the asterisk. And I think I may have been the first person to call him this. <laughs> You're taking credit for it? I am 100% taking credit for it. I tweeted about this. True shooting percentage. You named the asterisk. That is not a nickname. It's kind of weird, actually, when you think about that Russell Wilson doesn't have a nickname. No, Russ, it's just his nickname. But I tweeted about it after the Let Russ Cook is, like, mostly his nickname. We're going to get to letting Russ Cook. 
Wow. Letting Russ cook moments. You're taking credit for Russell Wilson's only nickname. Hmm. I 100% have. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, this tweet, April 27th, 2012. I don't, I mean, maybe I should, I should search for whether there's an earlier reference to Russell Wilson asterisk. I think most references to it would be mostly people being saying, why is he called the asterisk? I think I, I've seen that conversation recently on Twitter. Prior to you? No, no. Or, like or people recently. are asking that and then you jump in and you're like, it's because of me, bitches. I, <laughs> I have never said that. Kevin Pelton, ESPN.com. Russell Wilson is the asterisk. Okay, got it. All right, I'm scrolling down. I'm at 2013, 2012. Quote Jason Richardson. Who the hell is Kevin Pelton? Okay, and I mean, wh- they, they did mention him as ast- LCF's asterisk in the Football Outsiders article. And Jason Richardson tweeted, who the hell is Kevin Pelton, and why did he nickname Russell Wilson the and asterisk? But the first tweet here is, moving that we start calling Russell Wilson the asterisk in Seattle. Wow. Per at FOA Shots. And is a Barrett NFL forecast. This is the first tweet. The second one is field goals four days later studying the asterisk. So Ooh, there you go. That was at field goals themselves? Yes, it was the headline wow. of us. Danny, Danny. There you go. I don't Kate, Pelton, Kate Pelton beat you to it. He definitely did not follow me at that point. Okay. <laughs> he was in fucking Western, Western Washington University at that time. So the Seahawks quarterback room entering the 2012 preseason. Oh, my God. Matt Flynn, encumbered starter Traveris Jackson, Charlie Whitehurst, and rookie Russell Wilson. What a just wild group of players. (laughs) Isn't it incredible? Uh, In the preseason, Russell Wilson goes 40 of 63 for 536 yards, five touchdowns, and one interception. There there was, I think it was in week three that he won the job. That was at Kansas City, right? And I remember a throw that he made, I think, to the sideline, where it was like, it, it seemed like things were headed that way, but it was like, I mean, Matt Flynn going into that preseason was, he was the starter. This was the year, I think this was the first ever year of, I don't want to say Grantland, but it was the first ever time that I listened to the uh, Barnwell and Mays podcast previewing. Shouts to the Barnwell and Mays podcast. Uh, by the way, Whitehurst was already gone. I actually screwed that up. Just a colossal failure. Um, but he was San Diego Chargers quarterback, Charlie Whitehurst at the time. He was, yes. Uh, but I, I have never been more, con- I have never been more centered and focused on a football season. Maybe the following year. But this one, I don't think I've ever really been more focused on caring about and thinking about an NFL team than I was this year. Except for the opener, because we were busy with the Carcino Olympics. It's kind of wild that we didn't watch that game. I mean, we literally I, missed I think week one of the I, NFL season. I think we DVR'd it and like we went back and watched it at Katie's house for yeah, a little bit. But like I mean, we, didn't we watch, definitely we watched def- the final play or the final drive. It, it is actually probably the least amount of a Russell Wilson game that I've ever seen. It's, I've definitely seen less of, of games. I, That's you. That ain't me, though. Uh, oh, I guess maybe seeing... There was the game this year when I was flying back from Oakland, and we were playing Cleveland, but I was home by the second half. So, notably, you did not... Did you medal at the Carcino Olympics? 
It's fucking bullshit. If we're talking, I don't, we don't need to bring up the car scene Olympics again, but oh, I had the most, I had the most gold medals of anybody. Is this, is this true or is this the previous one? I don't even fucking know. And you all snuck in like darts and some shit. Later on, Carcino Games 2012, I had the most gold medals of anybody involved. Time. And I did, I did not win field goal kicking and darts, which I was rushed. I had a newborn child. You, notably, no children ever. Chris had no children at the time, as far as I recall. I'm out there, first, first newborn child competing in the Carcino Games. With the most gold medals of anybody, and you're giving it to somebody else. Come on, this is bullshit. The, I, I, meddled, I meddled. You didn't. Anyways, uh, gold medaled. I don't. I don't need Michael. To fucking, okay. Michael. Okay. Here, for the record, I don't want a lot of bronze medals. I don't want a lot of silver medals. When they when they add it up, who has the most gold medals? That's what they add up, and that's what matters. Thank you. So the Seahawks ended up losing that game at Arizona, 20 to 16, with Russ going 18 of 34 for 153 yards, including three straight incompletions at the four-yard line. Pete Carroll's favorite game of Russ's career. Oh no! Where he handed he handed the ball off the early he early 34 times. I no, he actually didn't hand throw it. But I remember the, the like this was the this was the beginning of let Russ cook. But we talked about it at the time where it's like they finally let him go. And there, there was a period where it was like, they really wanted him to hand the ball off a lot early on. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about this in a second, okay? I've got a plan here. Okay. So week two, they crushed Dallas 27-7. to And then comes the fail Mary game. Mm. I, I know that is the Golden Tate touchdown game. Yes. The simultaneous possession game. Yeah. <laughs> Can a you believe four, that was Russell Wilson's third game ever? A 14-12 win over the Green Bay Packers. Man. Uh, a really, I mean, you know, a stellar performance by the Seahawks defense in this one. Aaron Rodgers, That's 26 of 39 for 223 yards. He was sacked eight times. Man, they wish they had Matt Flynn that day. Four by Chris Clemens, <laughs> two by Brandon Meebane, two by first-round pick Bruce Irvin. Uh, Seahawks are then moved to four and two after a 24-23 win over the New England Patriots. They beat the Packers and the Patriots in a, like a five-week stretch. This was, at the time, this was the best football moment in my entire life. I was there at the Beastquake. I, I was a fan of the Seahawks before everything, right? I was there in 2005 beating the Patriots in this game. The You Mad Bro game was the best football game at the time because I hadn't been to the NFC Championship two years in a row at that time. This was the best football game I ever attended. Can you name the three receivers who Russell Wilson threw touchdown passes to in this game? I want to say Mike Williams. (laughs) No, he was not on the team by that point. Oh, Braylon Edwards. Braylon Edwards. No, he did not. He scored the penultimate touchdown. Doug Baldwin, a 24-yard touchdown in the first quarter, and then the game winner, a 46-yarder to Sidney Rice. With I was going to say, you didn't even give a fucking chance to say Sorry. Rice. Okay, here's the thing, though. <clears throat> in the, at the end of the first half, there was an intentional grounding where Tom Brady threw the ball as hard as he could 
just straight to the back of the end zone. And I was like, that is an intentional drowning. And I never thought in a million years that they would call that against Tom Brady of all quarterbacks. And they did. And that was just like, it was a wild moment. But beating the Patriots, when you have, things were starting to bubble, right? And then, and like, then Sherman with the you mad, bro. And we couldn't see this being at the stadium, but it was like, all of a sudden, Richard Sherman went from pretty good cornerback to one of the most important players in the NFL in that day. I mean, the, the stage was set for the Michael Crabtree, I'm not going to, like, sorry receivers or whatever, a year later started in this very second. This was when the 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 story of Richard Sherman started was this very game. And and for the team in general, it was like the simultaneous possession game was one thing. Beating the Patriots straight up was the most important win in the early stages of this Russell Wilson, Pete Carroll dynasty. So that game gave the Seahawks so much momentum that they went out the next week and scored six points at San Francisco on Thursday night football in a 13-6 to loss, with Russell Wilson going 9 of 23 for 122 yards and three completions in the second half. And that's when the bench Russell Wilson talk reached its crescendo on local talk radio. Wow, I literally do not remember that game. I remember watching it at Spitfire for some reason. Oh, damn. Shouts to Jerry Everard. Uh, <laughs> Owner of Spitfire, who we have not... not dis- wow, where... Oh, fuck. Me and Chris watched this game together before a Sounders match? Is that right? Uh, I mean... <clears throat> Plausibly, it would have been a playoff match for sure. Me and Chris were together watching this game, and it was so frustrating. We were at Spitfire for a while together, right? Were we? I think we were. Maybe. Oh man! Wow. Whew. Okay. Anyway, that was. I I I actually now that you mentioned that, remember that game, and me and Chris were watching. I don't know why we were together, but. We were all at Spitfire, and it was really frustrating. The Sounders were not playing, as it turns out. I mean, that was also, a... the MLS regular season is very long. They, they were still in the regular season. And, and maybe we just, for whatever reason, met each other there. But I think we all met at Spitfire. I think it was partially like not wanting to drive home through traffic for a Thursday night game at that point. Yeah. Anyways, so by that point of the season... Russell Wilson had averaged seven yards per attempt with seven interceptions in seven games. Uh, I recall Hugh Millen really uh, oh, vocally free, free supporting Mifflin. Said he was going to eat his hat if Russell Wilson became a good quarterback. So at this point, I did an analysis of how well Russ was throwing the ball in rushing situations. You're never going to believe this, but they were passing just 39% of the time on first and 10 or second and third and or third in short, uh, but that was by far his best results, and the Seahawks needed to let Russ cook. You're just, you're just, this is the Kevin Victory Lap tour. Oh, 100%. I've taken so many Victory Laps on Russell Wilson. Like, oh. people were honestly wanting to start Matt Flynn over him. Like, I, you can't live that down. I, I think if I'm, if I'm channeling back to my brain eight years ago, I don't remember us arguing about this, but I do remember 
I'm, I'm going to give you the W here. I hate to do it. It pains me deep to my core. But I remember being like, maybe Russell Wilson isn't ready for this, and you being like, he is. He was built for it. So he played better the next week. The Seahawks still lost 28-24 at Detroit to fall 4-4. Four and four. They then won seven of their final eight games of the regular season. The only loss coming at Miami at on Miami Thanksgiving af- weekend. After Thanksgiving. Oh, I mean, like, it's funny because they went 7-1 in those games, but the one that I most I remember the most is being furious about that Miami loss. <laughs> and the, Bear, uh, the Bears win also. That Bears win was... This, so that was this, the next week. I mean, they were 6-5. and five. Like, that's a crucial win at Chicago. They're down oh, in the fourth quarter. That And that was rewatched semi-recently. Yeah, I, are, is this still happening? The first games. Oh, the uh, it has yeah. not been happening lately. Yeah, or, you know, lots happening. But th- that game, to me, was the moment that... That was when Russell Wilson became president? But but actually, yes. not, not in a joking way, it, it was like... But it wasn't when Russell Wilson became president. It was when Gus Bradley and Pete Carroll were like, fuck it, we're running the read option. I believe Daryl Bevel was the offensive coordinator. I don't know that Gus Bradley Sorry. had that kind of influence <laughs> on the offense. Gus Bradley. Uh, Daryl Bevel and Pete Carroll were like... Because it was off a bye, right? No, it was the week after. The bye was... Let's see here. Before the Miami game. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it goes Miami. The bye was in a Thanksgiving week, so we had a ton of time off. Lose that game in Miami, which was really frustrating. I don't remember the game itself, but I remember being really upset about losing. And then the end of that Bears game was like, this, this is, they have committed to a new offense. Scored a touchdown with 24 seconds left. In a preview of things to come, gave up the tying field goal in that final 24 seconds, but then got the ball in overtime and marched down the field. Sidney Rice with a 13-yard touchdown pass on a play in which he was concussed and uh, missed some time. That was a really scary play, but an exciting outcome, obviously. Uh, Over the final eight games, Russell Wilson averaged 8.7 yards per attempt with 18 touchdowns and three interceptions. Okay, but we can't not mention maybe the most important game of the first... We're getting to it. Oh, Okay, fine. Okay, I'll let you get to it. And Marshawn Lynch thriving with that read option and the the rust keep element averaged 5.6 yards per attempt over the final 10 games Insane. dating back to the San Francisco game 5.6 like you should run if you're going to get 5.6 yes. yards per attempt run a lot then uh big so we mentioned the 23-17 OT win at Chicago a 58 to nothing win over the Cardinals that we attended together that was not the game I was going to mention but okay a 50-17 to 17 win versus Buffalo in Toronto. Remember that one? Very fun. And yeah. then the 49ers on Sunday Night Football on Festivus. This was like, okay, it's cute that you've won all these blowouts against bad teams, but what are you going to do against a real team? A team that, you know, had won the uh, had been the number one seed in the NFC the year before, right? At least had won the NFC West. Yes, and we're on their way to going to the Super Bowl. Although we didn't didn't for sure know that then, uh, with the they, new quarterback Colin Kaepernick, yes, the dueling root option in that one, uh, the Seahawks won forty two thirteen. This was 
I mean, like, there was never a more exciting game throughout the city of Seattle. I'm pretty sure this was it. This was, in a lot of ways, wasn't the most important game of the Ross Pete John era, but it might I, have been I, the most fun. It, it really was like, like obviously winning the NFC Championship game the year later against San Francisco was the most important game, but like this was the game. Like we beat the shit out of the 49ers. Just start to finish. And, the Seahawks and the scored a touchdown a minute 12 seconds into the game. They led 21 nothing a minute into the second quarter after a Richard Sherman 90-yard field goal return off a blocked field goal, which I do wow. not remember yeah, at all. No, no. The, the play <laughs> that I remember not. was Cam Chancellor destroying Vernon Davis in this game, though. That is that is the memorable highlight. I, I kind of thought that the Pete Carroll, like Mr. Peanut Strut was from this game. But sadly, it wasn't. It was from the New Orleans game on Monday Night Football the oh, next year. Another great one. But, like, <clears throat> this was the game where it was like, this team is not just for real. They're actually, you don't realize this, NFL, this is the best team in the league. They finished like, number one in DVOA. Exactly. It was like, other teams may go to the Super Bowl. Whatever. This team might not win the Super Bowl. This is, for this season, the best team in the NFL. That and was they the proved start. It by look, there was a close game at San Francisco. Come to Seattle, not a close game at all. But also, just like December twenty third, heading into Christmas, you oh, cannot yeah. have that. Like, God, I wish I had a time machine to go back to this moment. Like, I mean, I think we all do. There, there has. I wish I had a time machine for a lot of reasons, but there has. Honestly, there has never been a more fun game that I have been to as a Seahawks fan than this game. That was the start of their DVOA four peat, but they still finished a game back of the 49ers in the NFC West because the 49ers won their finale <sighs> and had to start the playoffs on the road at the NFC East champion Washington professional football team, which also had a thrilling rookie quarterback who we talked about last week, Robert Griffin III. And really just a bummer what happened to him on this turf. Uh, I mean, the Seahawks, which, by the way, like generally is a very low-injury field, FedEx field. Uh, Seahawks fell behind 14-0 before RG3's ACL tear and then outscored Washington 24-0 over the final three quarters, but notably also lost Chris Clemens to his own ACL tear in the same game. That would loom large the next week traveled to Atlanta, the NFC South champion, and number two seed? No, number one seed. They were ahead of the Niners. Because San Francisco ended up playing in Atlanta, too. Oh, yeah. Went down 20 to nothing and trailed 27 to 7, heading into the fourth quarter, before scoring three consecutive touchdowns as Russell Wilson went 24 of 34 for 379 yards and two touchdowns. I wish we would have realized at the time. Just how Seahawks of a story this would have been. Oh, I, I mean, I guess I don't, but like, yeah, I'm glad this, we didn't. This was the most Seahawks. We didn't. We had no idea at the time, but this was the most Seahawks game ever. And for every, from the comeback to the defensive breakdown at the very end to Pete making a bad coaching decision, like no, this. I <clears throat> Pete did not make a bad coaching decision. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
it's irrelevant <clears throat> whether you <throat> ice the kicker or not. It doesn't matter. It's that's outcome bias. If he misses that field goal, if we don't call a timeout, the Seahawks go to the Super Bowl three years in a row. But okay. But he could have just as easily made the first kick and missed the second. Like the, it's just complete random noise. Three years in a row. You're looking at a. You're looking at the night sky and seeing patterns. I just don't, don't exist. I don't believe that the Seahawks, if if they were to somehow have won this game, I do not believe that they go into San Francisco and lose. I agree. So they left 31 seconds on the clock after the go-ahead touchdown to to give them a 28-27 lead, giving Matt Ryan time to throw two passes and get 41 yards to set up Matt Ryan. Was this who was this on? What happened? I mean, they had no pass rush at that point because Clemens was out. Like, and guess what? Then they signed fucking Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill the next year. It was a great I, decision. I, <laughs> it, it, it is. It is such a bummer that that happened because to me, this is this is it's the Seahawks team that I actually care the most about. Oh, same. It's my favorite Seahawks team because I enjoy the like climb more than I enjoy the mountaintop. Well, this and the next year are, like, clearly the two most defining Seahawks teams that have ever happened. But, like, because, look, the mountaintop includes Clive Averill and Michael Bennett. <laughs> which, sure, which is a lot more like fun this, than rookie, rookie Bruce Irvin and Chris Clemens being injured. And this the, team came out of nowhere. The 2013 team, we expected them to win the Super Bowl. And, like, Obviously, you're realistic about it, and you're. It's not like we weren't excited, but it wasn't the same as the like newness of 2012. 2012 was. I mean, you go from being an eight and eight team to being. I don't want to say it's like your first love. uh, Yeah, you'll find out about that soon. Um, (laughs) I just, I, I don't. This was the most important Seahawks team of my entire life. Excluding, I mean, I excluding so nobody. They won the Super Bowl in other years. They win the Super Bowl in other years. I have never cared about a Seahawks team more than I did about the 2012 Seahawks team. I remember being so excited to watch the Pro Bowl because it was just like, this is an opportunity to watch Russell Wilson play football. Yep. And any of those are great. The, the second, this is the thing. So the football offseason is very long. And I remember the second they lost to the Falcons, it was like, I want to time travel forward to the beginning of the next season because it, w- it was just like we knew we knew we had the best team and this was not this is not retconning this is not looking back on it like as because they did win the Super Bowl the next year we knew in that moment that this was the best team in the NFL because they weren't the best team in the NFL in 2013 they were also but they were going to be this was we knew that they were the best team in the NFL in 2012-2, and they just happened to lose a game. Well, I mean, also, they just started slowly. Like, it took a while because they had a rookie quarterback. But, like, All right. it, it was this offseason, it went by, like, instantly. Because it Agreed. was like, bring me more football. And, and you, were, we, you were so excited about it. You were like, hey, let's start a podcast. I mean, literally never in at any other point in my entire life have I ever been this excited about a sports team. In between the 2012 and 2013 oh. Seahawks teams. You don't think you were more excited about the 95 Mariners? No. I, I was 10 years old. Like, Yeah, that's the point. You were 10 years old. 
I mean, to me, like, 94 Sonics is the peak of it, because then they broke my heart, and it's never going to be quite the same. No, this is it. You're wrong. You're just wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> uh, the 95 Mariners were a surprise. If I guess if you want to talk about anything, it'd be the 96 Mariners. But, like, baseball's different than football. Baseball is a slog. It's a happy slog during the summer when you're a child and the internet doesn't exist. It really, really is not. Like, <laughs> I disagree, sir. But when you when you know that you're a fan of the best team in the NFL, when you beat the Cardinals 58 to nothing, and you and me and Chris Smith are there, drunk as can be at CenturyLink Field, almost I mean, getting I kicked was, out. I was not drunk as could be. So maybe that's maybe that's a key difference here between. Like your enjoyment of the 2012 Seahawks and me thinking back relative to my childhood is alcohol wasn't as big of a factor for me. We were at Showbox Soto drinking Labatt's Blue. Is that right? I I don't specifically remember drinking Labatt's Blue. D- d- that was like the cheap beer of choice at Showbox Soto in the 2012 season. But picture yourself as me. Was this the year that the, the Deshaun Jackson touchdown happened? With the Eagles? No, I don't think so. I think that was his rookie season, wasn't it? No, definitely not. Well, I don't know. I won the fantasy football playoffs a lot of years. Um, You cannot be, as a 10-year-old or whatever, 11-year-old, me at Showbox Soto, drunk off Labatt's Blue every single game, walking in, beating the Cardinals. This wasn't the Seahawks who fucking lost to the Cardinals every single year. We beat the same Cardinals team 58 to nothing. Uh, it was not the same Cardinals team. But There's next, a lot more John Skelton and Ryan Lindley both the playing The next that year, game. John Skelton and Ryan Lindley could have been there. Quarterbacks of that caliber could have been there for the next eight years. And the Seahawks but never beat them. on Drew Stanton. But they never beat them at home like that. And this was a team, they were they were on a mission. We're on right? a mission from God. I, I'm just saying, this was the most fun Seahawks team. I don't care that they yeah, did you said it like seven times. I care more about the Seahawks team than I care about any other Seahawks team ever. Okay, congrats to you. Uh, Utah men's basketball won the Pac-10, but did not participate in March Madness. It was a week non-conference that saw the Huskies go 6-5 and five with losses at St. Louis, at Nevada, in overtime, a game where uh, Tony Roten did not give the uh, intentional foul that he was instructed to, uh, to both Marquette and Duke at Madison Square Garden by a combined eight points. So both of those were impressive performances. And then most damningly at home to South Dakota State behind a big performance by Nate Walters. And oh! Huskies' 32-game non-conference home winning streak. Walters! The same weekend as the Watch the Thrones concert. That was the same weekend? It was. It was a big Damn. weekend because the battle God. in Seattle, Gonzaga played Saturday. I went to that game on Sunday. Who did they play? Who did Gonzaga play? I don't remember that. What, did they play Southern Illinois one year? Probably. Or maybe Illinois. God. I want to go back in time to that weekend right now. Um, this was bullshit still, though. UW so, dessert. 
deserve to be in the tournament. We'll get to that. So the Huskies rebounded against a historically oh, weak Pac-12 that had just expanded, winning the conference at 14-4, and but then lost the tournament o- Pac-12 tournament opener 86-84 to Oregon State with Tony Roten missing key free throws, though he did have 29 points in that game, shooting 10 of 19 from the field. Literally probably his best shooting game of the year. Well... You know, the Tony Roden show, it was, it was, there were highs and lows. Uh, not selected for the NCAA tournament with Pac-12 tournament champ Colorado and Cal, the lone two representatives from the conference. Now you can say this is bullshit. This is fucking bullshit. Like, if you win the Pac-12 regular season title, that is, you're in the NCAA tournament. That's it. There's 64 teams at the time. They might have already been up to 68 by then. There's 68 teams at the time. Winning the Pac-12 regular season is worth being in the NCAA tournament. Whether you miss a couple of free throws in the Pac-12 tournament does not matter. They were 56th in Ken Palm that season. It it doesn't matter. In the NIT, where they were the number one, a number one seed, won three games at Hecat against Texas Arlington, Northwestern, a game that we attended. I mean, I, I went to all of these. Did I attend that? I think so. Hmm. I think you and the famous cousin Katie both went. And then most notably in the uh, quarterfinals against Oregon, a 90-86 win to return to Madison Square Garden for the NIT Final Four, where they lost 68-67 in overtime to Minnesota <sighs> in the semifinal. I remember <laughs> when Roden missed those free throws, It was at, I was at a Vera Project retreat. And I was at Dobe, watching it on my phone. Literally nobody else cared. And I was, like, feeling fairly devastated, but being like, they'll still make the NCAA tournament. It doesn't matter. It's fine. They won the Power 12 regular season. And we like Tony Roden. Like, I like Tony Roden as a basketball player. It, it, it just... What do you want, right? Like, Tony Roten is a homegrown basketball player. His family is deep in Seattle history. Like, Mrs. Fantasy Genius worked with his dad as security at Renton School District. Like, Tony Roten is part of who we are. And Gary Bell could have been part of who we were, too. Fuck that. Gary Bell would have stayed for four years. No, that's bullshit. Tony Roten was an NBA player who just, he, he he never quite had, like, the chops of being he, he was always flashy enough to be an NBA player and he never was fundamental enough to be an NBA player which is like he would make some thrilling plays but he, w- he was like the anti Brandon Roy you know Brandon Roy yeah. was so fundamental and could do everything as an NBA player he didn't do anything that thrilling Tony Roten made some amazing plays He's but so good at rebounding his own misses at the rim. He just he just wasn't as a consistent player. I, I, I think that if Tony Roten I think Tony Roten's whole whole career could have been different if he stayed another year at UW. But at no, the same I don't think so. He, he was he was an NBA player. Like and he had to take a shot at the NBA. And ultimately, like what he was able to contribute to a team could have been a very could have been a thing that could have dominated possessions for a bad team, but he just didn't oh, have the Philadelphia 76ers. He didn't have 
the game to be a consistent NBA contributor, and he couldn't he couldn't find his role. Also, but, Tony Roden, Tony Roden, he coined the term "trust the process." If I could spit on my drink, I would. <laughs> Before a bead, Roden. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Tony Roden came up with that phrase. You're saying you're coining terms. You're saying the asterisk. Tony Roten is coining trust the process. Yeah. What is this world we live in? That's like his lingering contribution to basketball is Tony Roten. Wow. He said it in an interview to ESPN's Pablo does, Torre. Does the, does the podcast The Rights to Ricky Sanchez know that Tony Roten is the one who coined that? I'm pretty confident they do. Uh, Tony Roten, is, he was not – he never had the game of a winning NBA player. He always had the game of – an NBA player who is not going to win games but is going to take up a lot of possessions and do some exciting stuff. And I do wonder how different Roden's career might have been. He tore his ACL, I think, as a junior at Garfield when he was playing basketball. Like, uh, or football, I should say. He played football for them as a junior. I remember Joshua Smith, who was the same class, who ended up at UCLA. I think he had a football injury, too. That was that the, same the big man? No. Yeah. From Kentwood? Yeah. yeah. It was well, a big year for Kent. They had Gary Bell at Kentridge and Joshua Smith at, at uh, Kentwood. Dude, Josh Smith at Kentwood. He was always undersized, but he was a monster. Playing against UW. He was like he was like six eight, but he was a beast. Like I remember like real young Roden, I assume his sophomore year, I think, was when I first saw it, him. It wasn't that was he that was, was an issue electric. though. He wasn't polished like NBA players are now. Like he he was a very good he he excelled at things that don't matter in the modern NBA. All right, UW football. Wait, wait, no, no, no. I have to say the last thing. Whether he what? tore his ACL or not, Tony Roden, he just wasn't a good shooter. And that was like the way that guards looked in in the era of him being an NBA player, you needed to shoot. Yeah. UW football rode the roller coaster that year. They played the season at CenturyLink during Husky Stadium renovations. Uh, they lost 41-3 to at number 3 LSU in Week 2 while you were losing the field goal competition in the Carasino Olympics. Hey, you know, I, I, I had a live tiger there. <laughs> I forgot about the live tiger. I lost. Then they bounced back with a 17-13 Thursday night win over number 8 Stanford High there we by go. 61 yards. Bishop Sankey touched down on the final play of the third quarter and a game-winning touchdown to Kaysen Williams. Leaping Hashtag over Kaysen defenders. <laughs> With 4.53 left, it was the Huskies' first win versus Stanford since 2007. <sighs> they lost their next three at number two Oregon versus number 11 USC. I wrote down UCLA for some reason. And at Arizona because Sark could never win in the desert. And then won their next four, highlighted by a 20-17 to win over number seven Oregon State. They played four top 11 teams that year. It was a very difficult schedule. Before losing the Apple Cup 31-28 in overtime at Wazoo after Travis Coons missed a 35-yard field goal at the end of regulation. It was the only Mike Leach win over UW. Wow. <laughs> so Mike Leach never defeated Chris Peterson, but had that one win over Sark. He, I mean, Sark solidly controlled that matchup, too. But 
had that one loss, which I remember listening to that field goal as I was driving to Portland to go to a Blazers Timberwolves game, and that was a tough one. Which team was Brandon Roy on? Um, <clears throat> he was he was on neither, as it turned out. We'll get to that. <laughs> that that win, the Casey Williams touchdown with him leaping over to the defender at CenturyLink. Oh, no, actually, I'm wrong. He was on the Timberwolves at that point. Us in the 200 level, the worst seats we've basically ever had for a Husky game. That was thrilling stuff. They were in the black jerseys. You remember that? Yeah. yeah oh, I did in the notes. I didn't mention it. That was good shit right there. It was like Kaysen Williams before. This was Kaysen before he got hurt, right? Or is this post-injury Kaysen? No, I think this was before he got hurt. I think this is his junior year. Man, Kaysen pre-injury. He still would have been a great NFL player had he stayed on the Seahawks. But uh, if they had freed Kaysen Williams, of course. But... Casing before the injury was he was destined to be a great NFL player. So the Huskies ended up facing number twenty Boise State, and some coach named Chris Peterson in the Las Vegas Bowl, and lost twenty eight twenty six in a Broncos field goal with one sixteen remaining. That uh, that score aside, the defense dramatically improved under new defensive coordinator Justin Wilcox, who replaced the uh, the controversial Nick Holt. Uh, but offensively, Keith Price took a step back, going from 67% accuracy in 8.5 yards per attempt as a sophomore to 61% in 6.3 yards per attempt as a junior. I wonder what I, – I honestly have no idea what happened. I feel like it's such a practical story or just a college football thing. story. Because his next year would go much better as we'll get to. We won't get to, I guess we won't. Go back and listen to the Pelton cast from 2013. We're getting to. Would... We're doing 2013. Fuck you. <clears throat> we already did a sports year interview and music year interview. We did not. Nobody listened to that. Well, nobody listens to this. Uh, the Sounders reversed some trends in 2012. They finally lost the U.S. Open Cup, but actually won a playoff series in the MLS Cup. They once again reached the U.S. Open Cup final, but lost <sighs> on PKs at Sporting Kansas City with the score tied 1-1 after extra time. Sounders finished third in the West despite the second-best goal differential in MLS at plus 18. They had a high-scoring duo that season of Eddie Johnson, newcomer with 14 goals, and Freddie Montero with 13, the longtime Sounder, beat RSL 1-0 on Ariat in the conference semifinals, getting the only goal from someone named Mario Martinez, who has completely been lost to history for me in the second leg on the road. Mario Martinez best... was on the Sounders? Yeah. I don't know what Mario Martinez you're thinking of, but it's not him. Uh, Advanced to the Western Conference Championship with home field over the LA Galaxy, but lost 3-0 in the road leg at Carson and could claw back just one goal at home. It was the end of the year and era for the Seattle Storm, who traded Swin Cash to Chicago in January for the number two pick used on Shakita Strickland. They prepped for the first half of the season without Lauren Jackson, who was preparing for her final Olympics with the Australian national team, and started the season 1-7 before recovering. They headed into the Olympics break 9-10, and uh, but really, despite Lauren's return, were not that much better afterwards. Uh, going just 7-8 and eight is she was limited to playing seven games and or nine games and averaging 18.6 minutes while dealing with injuries 
It was the Storm's first five, below 500 finish since drafting Subert in 2002. They still made the playoffs as the number four seed in the West in a matchup of the last two champions with the Minnesota Lynx. One game two in double overtime after Lawrence game tying three in the closing seconds of regulation and then had the ball down one with 3.3 seconds left in game three at Minnesota. But LJ missed the shot on the final play of her WNBA career and also my final game as a Storm boy wow. after 10 seasons with the team. Real <laughs> end of an era. There we go. Was it 2012 that you started working at ESPN? It was the end of 2012. December, Boxing Day 2012 was my first story about Austin Rivers having the worst warp in the league. Yeah, that I don't know if that aged well. I mean, it was true that he had the worst warp in the league. So People you, think Austin's had a better career than he's had. You started working at ESPN in the year 2012. Correct. And they, they had approached you, they flew you to Bristol or whatever this year. Yes. Ow! Uh, yeah, yeah. It was like it was, it was uh, shockingly fast. They called me at like 11 a.m. and then that night I was on a red eye flight to Bristol. Really? And the next week they hired me. Was I living with you at the time? No, no, that was 2011. You were solidly in Renton. I remember because remember, Baby Fantasy Genius was born. And I remember mom and I went over to your house after we went out to dinner to celebrate. And then uh, Baby Fantasy Genius was wearing a, a Santa hat. There was some photos on Facebook at one point. He Oh, you, we celebrated you being at ESPN? Yes. Wow. Okay, let's finish sports. I guess I have to talk about having a baby for the first time. All right. M's and <laughs> two. Mildly important event that happened. After 11 plus seasons and 2,533 hits, Ichiro was traded to the Yankees in July as the M's headed to a 75 and 87 finish. A season highlighted by Felix Hernandez during the first perfect game in Mariners history on August 15th versus Tampa Bay. Fittingly for Felix, it came in a 1 0 win with the M's scoring the only run in the third inning, and it is still the most recent perfect game in baseball history. Wait, really? Yeah, no one has thrown it. No, be perfect no, Simpson. no, no, that's wrong. I mean, Wikipedia might be wrong. I don't know. No, uh, that's crazy because I feel like there was an era where there was constant perfect games. Correct. And this just w- was the last of them. I guess so. Well, the um, Armando Galarraga game was after. No, that was earlier. I think that was 2010. They just were talking really? about Sports Center the other day. Really. Wow. Okay, so I'm looking at this and I'm saying I'm seeing Felix Hernandez is the last one. Yeah, it was ten years ago, Armando Galarraga. Because second, 2010. Wow. Okay. Wow. So for that matter, that's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Good for Felix. Also, the Blazers ended an era. Uh, at the end of 2011, after the lockout, they used the amnesty provision to waive Brandon Roy, who announced his retirement, which he briefly came out of to try to play for Minnesota, but I think he managed like six games with the Timberwolves. I guess 2012 was the year I saw him play in the crossover, back when it was at like the Garfield Community Center. Damn. The, before, before he was the coach. Yeah, uh, wherever the whatever the name of that community center is, and I remember going there and tweeting about his game, and Blazers Edge ran a piece about it. It was very exciting at that point, and then it that I come back did not last very long. Uh, 
The Blazers used the resulting tax flexibility to add Seattle native Jamal Crawford as a replacement for Roy and started 7-2 and before losing steam and dropping to 20-23 and ahead of the trade deadline. They had a busy day. They fired Nate McMillan. They waived Greg Oden. They traded Marcus Camby to Houston for expiring contracts and a second-round pick, and then they traded Gerald Wallace to the Nets for expiring contracts and a top-four protected first-round pick that later in 2012 they would use on Damian Lillard. Why? I mean, this was obviously a great moment in Blazers history. (laughs) And this, this great moment in Blazers history directly translated to a great moment in Seattle history. That's correct. In 2019. Dame Lillard, I love Brandon Roy as a basketball player. Dame Lillard is the most important basketball player in Portland history. I I don't know if I'm going to go that far. Fuck Clyde Drexler. Like, Bill Walton won a championship there. Clyde... Yeah, Dave's not there yet. Dean Lillard is the best basketball player to ever play in the city of Portland. I mean, Bill Walton won MVP in a season he played like 55, 50 games. No, like, like, what? pretty damn good. Okay, that's great for your 60s, 70s basketball. Like, come on. Dean Lillard was playing when there was real competition. He was playing a real sport at a real time. And Dave... At, at least, at least, as the impact of <laughs> basketball in the city of Portland affected the city of Seattle, Dame Lillard is the most important player in the city. Bill, Walton, Bill Walton's injury in the '78 playoffs affected the city of Seattle, but that's an entirely different story. Didn't fucking matter. Um, team still moved. Um, having, uh, but the, the shot that Dame Lillard made in last year's NBA playoffs was like, on, honestly. There's very little that can compare to that as far as a re- redemptive moment for the no- Northwest and basketball. Well, look, we're going to remember 2019 <clears throat> at a different time. Let's do it right now. It's already well after midnight. Uh, should we talk about music? Because <sighs> we got to talk about the Macklemore moment. It, it really, the, it, we, some of us like to call it the Macklemore moment. Do we? No, actually. <clears throat> but this was... So the Versus EP had come out previously. Macklemore definitely leveled up. Like, we've known Macklemore for a long time. Me and Mrs. Fantasy Genius used to joke with Katie and Ben as, like, Macklemore was the dude who would stand in front of us at hip-hop shows. And every single hip-hop show you'd be at, you'd be like, oh, there's Macklemore in front of us. Which is like, it's wild to think about now because Macklemore is a very, very famous person. But it was like, every show you'd be at, whether it was a national show, local show, whatever, wherever you are, Macklemore is in front of you. And obviously, I'd gotten to know him as a person. And the Versus EP had come out. He definitely elevated who he was as an artist. And it felt like things were moving in the right direction. But there was definitely a moment. So I went to the thrift shop was the first single from the heist and they did a video premiere at the crocodile so if you recall the thrift shop video there is him he's popping tags or whatever he's at the goodwill he's going through the bins there was like 
40 people there, right? Really? And, oh, yeah. I mean, you can't... Macklemore wasn't famous. Like, this This was not... The way that you're viewing it is Macklemore the famous person. This was Macklemore the local rapper, right? And I remember hearing the song and being like, this is a cool song, but... Oh, the, the video is by my guy, John John I. Yeah, John John, John filmed the video. It's like, Halls is in it. It's very interesting. Like, it was a cool moment. But also, I remember being like, there's swearing in the chorus. I was like, it'll never translate. <laughs> I distinctly remember saying that. And then by the time the next video came out for Can't Hold Us, the whole world had changed. So the next video came out, and he was like, we're doing a party for the Macmore fan club, a pizza party for the Macmore fan club. It was at Columbia City Theater. And this wasn't 40 people of fucking music industry people. This was packed at the Macklemore video premiere at Columbia City Theater for Can't Hold Us. And it was like the moment had happened in that time period between between Thrift Shop and Can't Hold Us. The moment had already started, right? And so like I went to both of these and it was like, oh, Macklemore matters now. And by the time we were there, it was like, I remember seeing it, and I wasn't in the very front. I wasn't one of 40 people. It was like, I was pushed to the back, being like, oh, this is kind of weird. There's people in the, in the like, snow, in the desert, in Seattle, at, like, the Memorial Stadium, when the Can't Hold This video happened, at, Clum- at Columbia City Theater, and that premiere. But this was, like, the first inaugural Macklemore pizza party. And it was the Can't Hold Us video. <laughs> and, and it really was just like, okay, we're kind of feeling that this moment is happening. And then Can't Hold Us hit Cube. And then Can't Hold Us hit, hit national radio. And then, can't, hold, can't Hold Us was the first? Well, Thrift Shop was first. But Can't Hold Us was the one that pushed beyond Broke it. through? Yeah. Was it? Yes. And then we got to November, October, November 2012, and same love happened, and it was just like, Macklemore owned the moment, especially in the city of Seattle. I mean, I went to a party at Oddfellows, organized by Carrie Harrop, where it was like, it was it was a pro-legalization of gay marriage in Washington State, and Macklemore owned that moment in the city of Seattle where it was like he he had the song for the message that was happening and I will never forget that election night like I remember 2008 and celebrating in 2008 but I was at home it's like this is cool we had were you there we had bottles of champagne I was there yeah okay yeah. in in the rent highlands like it was it was fun but there were a few of us 2012 we were at the Comet Tavern, recently reopened, and there was the Macklemore moment happening. There was gay marriage in 2012, November 2012. Obama was reelected. Gay marriage was legalized in the city of Seattle, or in Washington State. And weed was legalized. On the exact same day, all of these things happened. And we went and we partied in the streets on Capitol Hill. It was literally the best day of my entire life. 
So again, your child was born in 2012. Okay, I don't remember that very well. I know <laughs> my fantasy baseball team had a good week. But no, I'm telling you, you cannot replicate. I was. It was a moment. It was for Obama sure, moment, especially in Capitol like, Hill. I'm at I'm at the Comet Tavern and seeing on TV, being like, "We're projecting." I'm watching Anderson Cooper or whatever. And they're like, "We we're officially declaring," because these the TV networks carrying a lot of weight in declaring things, right? And they're like, "We have declared that Barack Obama has won the election," and they're like, "Wash in the state of Washington." It was like gay marriage has been legalized, Mar- marijuana has been legalized in the state of Washington. All of this happened the exact same fucking day. And we went outside. I was at, at the Comet Tavern. Literally, it was just like laws don't exist anymore. Like we're drinking outside. We're smoking outside. We're having gay marriage outside. All of it is happening in this exact moment. And it was like the... the very different than Capitol Hill right now. <clears throat> uh, the, the utopian world that we want to see all came together at once in this moment in 2012. It was it was an incredible moment. I mean, the thrift <sighs> shop like just became such a massive song. I mean, I the thing you mentioned it like first hearing Macklemore on Cube was like, oh, oh, this is something. And then it was like Macklemore is on literally every radio station. Like country stations were playing Macklemore. Like, uh, Kixie. Yeah, where, I was wherever white people were, they were playing Macklemore. No, like, well, I mean, you know, it's Seattle radio, I think, everywhere. <laughs> Every cool. station was playing Macklemore. I mean, and I got to tell you, I, I, I put it on the playlist, but I don't know that I can listen to Thrift Shop again. But Can't Hold Us still holds up. So, oh yeah, I'm telling you, can't hold us. Thrift shop was important. Can't hold us. Change things. I mean, that song is like this touchdown song for the Seahawks for a long period of time. I've got the sign. So the heist came out that year, which was the Macklemore album. He won the Grammy for best rap album for the heist, and like wrote, wrote some notes about it. And then it it's we, good. We're gonna get to those in a second. It, it's good. He he had a lot of guilt. Like, what we're talking about is literally maybe the best rap album that has ever been recorded came out in 2012. And spoiler alert, it's not the heist. Um, but I've got the CD version of it's got the like crocodile like <laughs> outline of it where it's like embossed, the crocodile embossed, signed by Macklemore across the top. Somewhere in the fucking garage or downstairs or whatever, where he sent it to me. And I was like, this is kind of cool, right? And it still is kind of cool. I mean, look, whatever you think about Macklemore right now, like, that was such an amazing time. And no. I want to I note a specific <clears throat> memory, which is, like, after I finished the last Pro Basketball Prospectus book we did in 2012, I remember, like, putting 10,000 hours on repeat and being like, that was like my celebration for finishing that book. It, it, it is a, it is a pretty good, it is a very good wrap up. And ultimately like at that moment, he was an extremely important artist. There are other voices that I think are extremely important to 
recognize since then and even in the year 2012 but like yeah should we get to frank well is that where we're gonna go next well tell me where we're gonna go because there's a lot there are a lot of important records that came out in 2012 i mean what were you referring to is the greatest rap album of all time yeah you were referring wait what were you referring to good kid mad city okay that's what i assumed yeah but i mean possibly it's up there. It's it's in the conversation. That, like, it hits so hard out of nowhere. Uh, I mean, not out of nowhere, but, you know. So, uh, we talked about this before. He played Bummer Shoot, and I remember being pretty skeptical. Uh, whoa, whoa. Skeptical? <laughs> wait, wait. Re-record that. I remember being pretty skeptical about Kendrick Lamar. Katie was like Section 80, Kendrick Lamar. Katie was very into, and I was like, I remember being into Vegas, me and Ben and Katie and Mrs. Fantasy Genius, and Katie was just like, Yo, Kendrick Lamar, the shit. And I was like, No, nope. I was I was like pretty anti. I'm willing to admit it that I felt like Section 80 was it was just not my shit, and I heard Good Kid, Mad City, and from like there's the charade into bitch don't kill my vibe and i was like oh okay this is the most important rapper of our generation you don't even need to get like you get to backseat freestyle and you're like it's solidified but by the time you get three tracks in it would be indisputable that kendrick lamar is the most important rapper of our generation and it's like there's other there's other rappers who are more popular. Drake is more popular, whatever. Kendrick Lamar is at obviously another level, both skill wise as a rapper. He's probably indisputably the best rapper maybe of all time. And then also as far as the message goes, again maybe the best rapper of all time. Like th- there's there have been rappers who have been a lot more who have been more fun than Kendrick Lamar. But beyond that, it's really hard to dispute what he is doing. And if, if there was anybody who was carrying on the legacy of somebody like Tupac, it is Kendrick for sure 100%. It's hard to believe he used to be jealous of Aaron Aflala. And the Aaron Aflala, 100% Aaron Aflala references. <clears throat> <laughs> the most Aaron Aflala references. But that's that's what makes it tight, like... When he said that, when he's like, it used to be jealous of Aaron Aflala, you're like, hell yeah, Kendrick. You're like, that's the real shit. That's what I want to hear, right? Like, I want to hear what it felt like to be there in Compton in the, whatever, year 2008. Something like that. Like, I, was it earlier than that? Because I, Aaron Aflala was in the NBA in 2008. Was he? Remember seeing him at All-Star Weekend that year. He was like, when he, when he I, raps, I used to want to be Aaron Aflala, though. You're like, I gotta, I gotta say where I saw Aaron Aflala at All-Star Weekend, there, though. Where? It was at the, it was at the Popeyes in New Orleans. Damn. <laughs> Number one chicken sandwich, too. But when, when he raps, I used to, like, when you hear that, when you're, I mean, Good Kid, Mad City, every single song is incredible. But when he raps, I used to want to be Aaron Aflalo, you're just like, God damn, Kendrick. It's like, you're so far beyond the rest of us. You know? Like, th- this is a rap album that is incomparable to basically any rap album that has ever existed. 
And I remember when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, spoiler alert, for the next year. We were listening to Money Trees drinking, oh my god, what's that cinnamon sugar liquor? I thought we were, I was drinking uh, Skittles and champagne. Oh, no, no, we're not talking about Katie's house. We're talking about when we went to the fucking SeaTac. <laughs> I'm not sure. I wasn't partaking by that point. You weren't? Oh, Fireball. We were drinking Fireball, and it was like we were in the South Side. Look, there's Katie's house, and there's the South Side. They're different places. And people were passing around the fifth of Fireball. There was like a quarter of it left. Maybe we'll talk about this later. Maybe we'll talk about this next year. But Money Trees by Kendrick Lamar was playing. The Fireball was being passed around. And I remember it was passed to me, and I was just like, I'm drinking all of this. I'm drinking <laughs> a quarter of the bottle. I was like, the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. Money Trees is playing. There's no better moment that's coming. And I slept in a dog bed that night. But there's no better moment. An, an, an infant child at that time. Yeah, fuck that. I slept in a dog bed. I don't care. The Seahawks won the Super Bowl. And I drank a quarter of a fifth of Fireball. Two money trees by Kendrick Lamar. Look, I've had about a thousand children since then, and I, the Seahawks have not won the Super Bowl since then. So thank you. Indisputably Facts. accurate. <laughs> oh my God! This is- Should we talk about Channel Orange? God damn, 2012 really hits. It's weird because like I was going along in 2012, and I was like, wait. There's no good music this year. And wow. like then all of it was released in the back half of the year for some reason. Oh, uh, Channel Orange was not the back half of the year, it was June. But Alright, fine. Channel Orange was the one that was already on the list. Uh I don't know if I talked about this last year with Watch the Throne, but like for a period of time, every year there would be one album that I would repeatedly listen to when I was writing at that point, the book, and then eventually the just player profiles from it for ESPN. And Channel Orange was that during the summer of 2012. I listened to it literally every single day I wrote. <clears throat> I don't... Uh... You don't what? I listened to Channel Orange when it came out pretty much nonstop. So there was first, there was a message from Frank where he was just like, I'm not, I, I am a gay man, basically. Where he was like, it, it was like iPhone message at the time, like 2012, where he was like, my first love was a man. And you see that and you're just like, what is going on? Right? Because like, this was, this was the era of hip hop where that wasn't common in 2012. This wasn't a normal thing to see. His Macklemore dress in Sam Love. Let's actually not invoke Macklemore when we're talking about Frank talking about Channel Orange, but yes, like th- this was Frank as a young, cool black man is so different than Macklemore and his co-opting the culture or whatever. This was Frank being like. My first love was a man. I, this, this, making the point that he said, 
I would think hip hop hates me in that song. That was the point I was making. There's a big difference, but it's okay. When I read that, I was just like, I read through the, the iPhone notes that Frank put out and it was like, Oh, wouldn't wouldn't for iPhone notes? Oh shit, point? dude! iPhone notes are undefeated, 2012 through 2019, maybe. Um, but like reading that, I was just like, "Damn, Frank." Okay, I was like, I like Nostalgia Ultra, but this is the most important artist of our generation, and consistently, like I re- I remember so many moments from that summer. Whereas, like, Channel Orange is all that I care about. It was, like, Pink Matter, Force Gump, uh, uh, oh, my God, Pyramids. Yeah. It was, like, when he talks about Pyramids, like, as a person who's been to Vegas, where she's, he's, like, she's working at the Pyramid at night, I was, like, oh, Luxor, that's pretty tight. And then he breaks it down, and he, like, goes through the, like, parts of the car. He's just, like, Frank Ocean is on such a different level than every other artist recording music. There's literally no way that a human being can record more important music than Channel Orange. Until, of course, Blonde came out, which made somehow Channel Orange sound bad. But, like, he he was so far beyond what anybody else was doing. You know? Like, we talk about now, what, Tower the Creator, whomever is doing in mainstream pop music. Frank Ocean in 2012 was where everybody else is in 2020. Like, Channel Orange is... It's not my my favorite Frank Ocean record. I still am... I'm I'm a blonde stand. But, like... It is my favorite. And Channel Orange is, like, the pop version of Blonde. But like, he he gets denser. He gets a little bit more outsider when it comes after that. But like, there's songs on Channel Orange where like, when we're done recording this podcast, I'm just gonna plug these headphones into my phone and I'm going to listen to them. I'm gonna listen to Lost, right? And it's gonna sound incredible. What Frank Ocean achieved on Channel Orange is what basically no other artist has achieved before or since then we're talking like on the comparable level of like this is this is his blonde on blonde or whatever like w- this is at the level of the most important records that have ever existed but this and good kid mad city came out in the exact same year is insane <sighs> anything else we need to discuss 2012 music I'm just <laughs> Frank. He he just gets better. How does that happen? I feel like we can move pretty quickly through the other aspects of it. TV uh, Veep debuted in 2012. If you want to talk about Veep, so good. I can I just say Bad Religion is just like I have to come back to Channel Orange. Bad, bad Religion is like when you hear that and you're like. You read the note from him talking about, he's like, my first love was a man. And then you listen to Bad Religion and you're like, I can, I can project out all the feelings they are expressing from this. He's like, it set up the next decade of music. 
So Veep. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Person from Seinfeld. Oh. <laughs> oh, the new adventures of the old of old Christine person. <laughs> That's what I think of. No, dude. Like, the occasional curb ghost star. Veep is in, incredible. The the cast, Gary Cole, uh Jonah from Veep, right? Tony Hale, like the the rest of the cast. I I feel like I, I mean, they really struggled with because politics became pretty questionable by the end of it. Like, politics wasn't a fun thing to discuss by the end of Veep. But the, like, vulgarity of Washington, I think they they did a very good job of encapsulating it in Veep. Uh, any movies you want to talk about from 2012? I mean, you have Django and Chain listed, which I watched recently. Uh, the Rick Ross verse. <laughs> what is the song called? It's called like, A Hundred Coffins or whatever. I thought that movie was incredible. A Hundred Black Coffins. hundred Black Coffins. Uh, I thought the movie in general and then... Tarantino working with Leonardo DiCaprio for the first time, uh, as as far as a long, dense film, that was very exciting. It's not Channel Orange though. Who cares? Or it's a 2012. On that note, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks.